podcast for seniors. Today's episode is going to talk about another chapter in Scouting for the Mormons for the Great Frontier. We've read up to chapter 5 and now, whoop, chapter 7, and now we're going to be up to chapter 8 called Lariats and Warpaint. And I think it should hopefully be a very interesting chapter for you. Fortunately, a few stories of those Indian-infested trails still survive to show us the mettle of the men who rode them. In the summer of 1851, E.K. Hanks, Femoros Little, and Charles F. Decker made a contract with S.H. Woodson to carry the mail between Salt Lake City and Laramie, Wyoming, for two years and 11 months. Hanks and Little left Salt Lake City for their first trip in mid-July with the Eastern Mail and some extra animals to stock the route. They met a company of immigrants who told them that the Bannock Indians in the neighborhood of Willow Springs and Red Buttes appeared hostile. Traveling on until late afternoon, they stopped, turned out their animals, and made their usual preparations for remaining throughout the night to deceive any Indians who might be watching their movements. After dark, the white men made a good fire, slipped into the shadows, and very quietly started again on their way. They drove to Red Buttes, stopped their wagon in the road, and turned out their animals, making no light to reveal their whereabouts. The animals, however, indicated that they scented or saw something unusual in their surroundings. They were uneasy. Both men realized that after all their efforts to get away from the Indians, they might have camped in their very midst. But having used every practical means to avoid danger, they were ready to take their chances and lie down to sleep. So they spread their blankets in the road behind the wagon, crawled in, and slept soundly. Getting up the next morning, they discovered the tracks of a huge grizzly bear around the spot where their heads had been. With a small rule which he carried in his pocket, Little measured the tracks and found them to be 13 inches long. This enormous grizzly had walked around the sleepers with a probable desire of making a supper from them. And if from any cause Hanks or Little had made a move while undergoing examination, the results might have not been so fortunate. The uneasiness of their animals when turned out the evening before was no doubt caused by their seeing or smelling the grizzly. On one return trip from Laramie, while Eve was com- complete, completing another mission, he sent his Indian man, whose name was Yodes, to accompany Messrs. Little and Comway. This trip proved to be very trying to both men and animals. They had two men with them, Mr. Gamble and Mr. Holliday, who permitted the mail party to lead and break the track for them. Yodes and Mr. Contway ahead, the others kept hold of their lariat attached to the mail. The snow was several feet deep and usually let a man sink in up to his knees. Where there was a brush under the snow, the difficulty was much increased. The weather was severe as they ascended to the top of Big Mountain. Mr. Gamble seemed to be giving up. His beard and face were nearly covered with icicles formed from the congealing of the moisture in his breath. His eyes were sunken and haggard. He said he could go no farther and wanted to rest. In fact, he evinced a strong determination to camp without regard to place. He was evidently in the first stages of insensibility from freezing. To leave him was certain death for him, and that in a short time his companions were under the necessity of concerning the little strength left them, or they would all perish together. The Indian Yodes had but little of the milk of human kindness in his nature. This characteristic made him quite useful in this trying emergency. Mr. Little quietly told him to cut a switch from a tree conveniently near to make Mr. Gamble up, for he was freezing. A grin of satisfaction spread over the features of the Indian as he broke a limb from the tree and gave Mr. Gamble a cut around the legs. 
The pain and insult together began to arouse the man's dull sensibilities, and he attempted to get a hold of the Indian to chastise him, but Yodes managed to dodge him and to put in occasional doses of the switch. The medicine was severe, but it was the means of saving Mr. Gamble's life. He swore that he would repay Yodes both for the pain and the insult of the blows, and he soon became pretty well warmed up. They all succeeded in making the ascent. Gamble was told that a man who could climb a hill could certainly go down it, and that if he would not go without, they would drag him down. The threat proved to be all that was necessary, for they all arrived at the foot of the mountain on the west side. Much knowledge and many skills were necessary to preserve life on the trail. One of these was skill with a lariat. The following letter, received many, many years ago by Walter E. Hanks from Alan Taylor, attests to E. from K. Hanks' skillful use of the lariat. Brother Hanks, dear sir, I came out in the year of 1848 in President Young's company. I was captain of the company and did something else to ride <clears throat> and see that everything was kept in order. I went back to the same year with 62 wagons, which were the immigration wagons. In traveling back to the plains, Brother E.K. Hanks overtook me one evening, just as we had camped. He was carrying the mail on horseback to the bluffs. Brother Taylor, he said, back here about a half mile, there's a herd of buffalo. I will unpack and go back and bring one in. He took his lariat, went alone, and lassoed the yearling. He brought him into camp, rolling and tumbling. My teammates rode him and had their fun with him and then butchered him and made him a fine piece of meat. Next morning, Brother Hanks left for the bluffs. I think there's no danger of Brother Hanks suffering for meat as long as he a horse and a lariat. The following is an excerpt from A Comprehensive History of the Church by B.H. Roberts. In 1851, Woodson subcontracted the carrying of the mail between Fort Laramie and Salt Lake City to Mr. Femera's Little of Utah. The distance was about 500 miles, much of it through mountainous country, with no settlements but one trading post between the fort and Salt Lake City. The subcontract went into effect on the 1st of August, 1851, associated with Mr. Little and the subcontract was Ephraim K. Hanks and Charles Decker. In connection with carrying the mail, the contractors also carried passengers. The service was attended by great hardship, both for men and teams. First mail from the east under Woodson's contract, for instance, though arriving in Salt Lake City as early as November 9th, was reported to have passed through snow from one to three feet deep for 17 days. In 1852, Charles Decker, bringing in the mail from Laramie, had a narrow escape from death at the hands of hostile Indians, on which occasion he met with Kit Carson, to whose intercession he ascribed his deliverance. On the same journey he met with the following trying experience chronicled by Brigham Young. Brother Charles Decker arrived from Laramie with the Eastern Mail. He had to swim every river between this and Laramie. The mail coach and mules were lost at Ham's Fork, where the mail lay underwater from 1 point to 7 p.m. From 1 to 7 p.m., excuse me. The lead horses were saved by being cut loose. Brother Decker was in the ice water with the mail all the time and then exhausted, had no resource but to wrap himself in robes and blankets. What his water could make them till morning. When he found himself in a pre-perspiration fully relieved from a fever he had been laboring under most of the time since he left the city, Brother Ephraim K. Hanks about the same time had proceeded as far as the Bear River with the eastern mail. At Weber River, the raft on which he and party crossed was sucked under, forcing them to swim for their lives. The mail was carried down the stream and lay in the water upward for two hours. After a great deal of trouble and at the risk of their lives, they secured it, but in bad condition. 
On reaching Bear River, which was a foaming torrent extending from mountain to mountain, they found it impossible to proceed. It was very difficult for us of these latter years to realize the enormous hardships endured by such men as Ephraim K. Hanks. He and two or three others of the bravest of pioneer mail carriers made the perilous trip across the mountains in the plains some 50 or 60 times. Each trip required 40 or 50 days, in one case 90 days, for they were obliged to remain some time in a cave with their animals to escape a fearful snowstorm. And neither men nor animals had other food than jerked meat rolled in flour while they lived in a cave. The government allowed these men $1,000 a trip, and they surely earned it. If provisions gave out or were ruined or lost, their only recourse was hunting. Jerked meat was the standard food and the most easily prepared and transported. The hazardous winter trips exacted a heavy toll on strength and courage, and it was this general feeling that strong food was required. A journey to the Missouri River and back again, in which E.K. Hanks took a leading part, had been related in an interesting and amusing way by Solomon F. Kimball. On the fourth day of August, 1851, Dr. John M. Burchill was elected to the 32nd Congress of the United States. He being the first man to represent Utah in the legislative councils of the nation, he was a highly polished gentleman of the Sandy Hill, Pennsylvania type, and traditionally a Whig. It fell to the lot of Efanks, Charlie Decker, and George Clausen, noted mail carriers of the Western Plains, to take the Honorable John M. Burschheisel to the Missouri River so that he would reach Washington in time for the opening of Congress. Their outfit consisted of a light wagon drawn by two mules, three pack animals loaded with government mail, and two saddle horses. The doctor discarded his broadcloth at 10 o'clock in the morning of August 9, 1851. A start for the national capital was made. Everything went well for them until they reached the upper crossing of the North Platte. Here they found no ferryboat, having brought four 10-gallon kegs along in case of just such an emergency. They loaded everything into the wagon, ran into the river, lashed a keg to each wheel, and tied it to one of a long rope to the wagon tongue, and then the other. Eve and Charlie swam to the other side. In the meantime, Clausen had gone over with the animals, taking the harness and saddles along with him. The scouts then hitched the team of mules to the end of the rope, and in this way the wagon was hauled over. The next thing was to get Utah's first congressman, who was a poor swimmer, across the river. The scouts thought it too much of a risk to take him over in the wagon, so they adopted this plan. George and Charlie, with one end of the long rope, swam back to where the doctor was, fastened the rope securely under his arms, then three of them waded into the stream as far as possible, each pulling in the slack rope from the other side as fast as they advanced toward him. The swimming then began in earnest, Charlie and George helping the honorable gentleman whose Whig political inclinations they were well aware as much as they could. When they reached the main channel, they became separated, and then it was every fellow for himself. As soon as the boys let go of the doctor, he cried for help. Eve, taking in the situation, having the other end of the rope tied to the horn of his saddle, put spurs into his fiery steed. For the next hundred feet, Honorable John M. Moore resembled a good-sized fluttering wheel, with full head on, then a delegate to Congress. After working over him for some time, the company moved on. Several days after reaching the bluffs, the Democratic mail carrier scouts were convulsed with laughter when they read in the Frontier Guardian the following communication from the doctor. Orson Hyde, editor, Frontier Guardian. Dear sir, I have arrived here this afternoon in good health. Should you deem it worthy of notice, please say in the Guardian that I am neutral in politics. I haste 
I am truly yours. On their return trip, the scouts ran out of provisions, and as good luck would have it, they camped near a company of gold seekers on their way to California who had plenty of everything. Decker went to their camp to purchase supplies, but the haughty captain refused to sell him anything. When Charlie reported this fact to his companions, Eve, with a twinkle in his eye, said, George, let's you and I give him a whirl. George Clausen had black eyes, Roman nose, and wore a full buckskin suit. With plenty of feathers, horsehair, charcoal, and paint, Eve and Charlie were not long in making him look like a full-fledged Cyan chief of the most savage type. These men spoke the Indian language fluently and had crossed the plains too many times to be outdone by a crowd of tenderfeet. When everything was ready, Eve went one way and George the other, the latter following a deep ravine that led to the hills some distance above the immigrants' camp. They were mounted on good horses and armed to the teeth. Eve, in the garb of an old mountaineer, followed the river bottom, keeping out of sight until he reached the main road, half a mile west of the gold seekers' camp. He then reversed his course, following a trail that led to their wagons. As soon as he reached the camp, he lost no time in telling them that they were in a regular hotbed of bloodthirsty savages who thought no more of peeling scalps from the ordinary immigrants than they did of eating a chunk of broiled beef after a hard day's hunt. By the time the gold seekers were worked up to a high pitch, Along came Clausen, galloping down the hillside at breakneck speed, letting out yells that would have done justice to old Geronimo himself. When he reached the camp, he began to harangue the bystanders in rather regular Indian fashion, at the same time swinging his arms and pointing to the mountains, hills, and plains. As excited crowds soon gathered around, and the captain with flushed face and clenched fist wanted to know what the trouble was, after Hanks had talked matters over with the chief, he turned to the exasperated wagon boss and said, Captain, he wants you people to understand that he owns this whole country as far as the eye can see and that you will have to pay dearly for the rich bunchgrass your hunger animals have been devouring during the last five sleeps or somebody about your camp will lose his scalp. Just as sure his name is Sitting Bull. The excited captain turning to Hanks wanted to know what the damages were, as he was more than willing to pay anything in reason rather than be bothered with a band of cold-blooded bulldozers at this savage fellow's kind. After the chief and the mountaineer had another spirited talk, Eve told the captain that the chief wanted some flour, bacon, beans, tea, coffee, sugar, and tobacco. The wagon boss ordered the commissary to bring forth the desired supplies, and the request was immediately granted. And then the chief began to jabber again, at the same time rubbing his stomach and making all kinds of horrid faces. The captain wanted to know what in the name of the common sense the old cuss was kicking about this time. Eve good-naturedly explained to him that the chief's wife was very sick and he wanted some good brandy to rub on her stomach as well as some candy for the youngsters. Clausen and Hanks were soon wending their way towards their camp with everything their hearts could desire. While well, the captain and his companions were congratulating themselves or the clever manner in which they had conducted their case. So there we are. Interesting. Chapter 8. We'll continue on with Chapter 9 called Dodging Bullets next week. And so hopefully you're listening in and hopefully there's uh, this is proving to be interest- interesting for you. So... Thanks for listening. This is Podcast for Seniors. This is Al Jensen, your host. And uh, we'll have another chapter for Scouting for the Mormons on the Great Frontier uh, next week. Thank you.